welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This is sort of a special edition of Scratching the Surface. Jessica Helfand is on the show today. Jessica, of course, is a designer, a writer, an educator, and probably best known as the co-founder of Design Observer. I interviewed Jessica back in July over Skype, but what I didn't know at the time of our conversation is that Jessica was also going to be a visiting critic here at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art, uh, this semester to critique the graduate thesis projects. Now, I, of course, am getting my MFA at MICA, and this podcast that you're listening to now is part of my thesis project. So when Jessica was here in Baltimore last week, I enjoyed our first conversation so much that we sat down and recorded a follow-up interview, this time face-to-face, which you'll hear next week. But today, you're going to hear our first conversation, which we recorded back in July, where we talk about the origins of Design Observer, how she started writing, the effects of social media on design criticism, and using podcasts and video and other mediums to talk about design. And then next week, you'll hear our new conversation, which we just recorded, where we talk about a lot of other things that we didn't even get to in this conversation. A quick programming note, in this episode, you'll hear me reference my interview with Armin Vitt of Under Consideration and Brand New. Due to the release schedule, Armin's interview will be coming out next month, and so I just want to apologize for you hearing us talk about an interview that hasn't released yet. I know that can be annoying, but I promise it is coming soon but I wanted to release these two interviews with Jessica together. I really love Jessica's work. I love how she thinks, and she is so fun to talk to, and it was really an honor to spend time with her when she was here in Baltimore and uh, over the summer. And so this is the first part of my conversation with Jessica Helfand. Um, So I wanted to... I kind of wanted to begin uh, with when I, I came to design about 12 years ago or so when I was in high school, and I told this story to Michael Beirut, and I interviewed Armin Vitt last week, and I told him this story also. Um, I grew up in suburban Pennsylvania, had never met a graphic designer before in my life. Um, so this was like 2003 or so, and so I kind of just got on the internet and started looking around at what graphic design was. And so my first introduction into what a graphic designer does and who graphic designers are were through design blogs because that was right as blogs were kind of picking up steam and kind of- Right, like, we, we started ours in 2003, end of yeah. 2003, yeah. Yeah, and I think I was like a very early reader as being like a you know, 14, 15 year old kid. <laughs> and so my, my I, I learned about kind of criticism and theory and and these types of things before I ever went to design school and learned what kerning was. For like, like I, I knew kind of design history before I knew the kind of practical side. So it's very like fundamental to my design education. And obviously, Design Observer was a huge part of that. Right. Um, and so I kind of wanted to start a little bit there. I was curious about kind of how, what, what are the origin? Or actually, you know what? Let's start even back a little bit further. What? What came first for you, kind of design or writing? Um, definitely design. Um, but I have an unorthodox background as a designer because I didn't go to art school. I went to Yale as an undergrad. I studied graphic design, but there was no theory back then. So I did a special combined major in graphic design and architectural theory. 
so d desperate was I for the kind of things you and oh, I are talking about, right? Yeah. Like something to actually help me uh, understand and really contextualize the work that that interested me visually. And I'd grown up with parents who were collectors, and in particular a father uh, who was a collector of 19th century posters and prints and things having to do with the history of medicine. And so I grew up in a house full of drug posters, big oversized printed things that were romantic and colorful. And, and so I think I had a really strong understanding of graphic form without knowing what graphic form was, right. except that that graphic form was not the graphic form that was privileged at Yale in the 80s when I was a student, when people like Paul Rand were here wanting you to do everything that looked, you know, that was informed by geometry and inspired by the Bauhaus and by the Black Mountain College and so forth. So I've said this before, this is not an original comment, but it, but it's, it's a very uh, honest comment, which is that I think that the large, largely in my adult life, I have been sort of uh, felt very much between these two poles. One, the, the kind of romantic... Uh, 19th century, very illustrative, very colorful, very expressive uh, visual language of my father's posters and the Swiss regimentation right. of the rigor of my education. And I think you need both. I do think you need both. Um, but but I was I felt very much alone at, uh, between those two poles. The writing the writing came much later. Uh, and I, in fact, as an as a student at Yale, I never took any writing classes. But but I had a very brief career after college as a, as a television writer, where I just learned. Oh, on my really? Feet. Yeah, I, I wanted to work in in uh, in entertainment. I was very interested in theater. Uh, my uh, my other love besides graphic design was theater, and I was an actress in college, and and so I really oh. had to choose. And I thought, well, before I go to design school, if I do that, maybe I'll just go and and work in television, which in those days meant you either worked in daytime or you worked in nighttime news. And uh, I really didn't know enough about politics to work in nighttime news, so I ended up writing for a soap opera, which is an oh, embarrassing, wow. ridiculous confession, except that uh, it was actually great training because if you have to write so much, you can't get precious about your work, and so you just you really learn how to write. So <laughs> even though I'm not, I'm not writing about characters and romance, it, it was really great training ground. And had, had you written much before that? Uh, no, I wrote, I wrote an undergraduate thesis and I wrote a, I wrote my thesis in grad school, but, um, I wasn't, I really hadn't written much before that. Um, and what was interesting is that when I was writing for television, if I look back on the scripts that I wrote, there was a visual person struggling to get out. In other words, there, there was a lot of description. There was a lot of, of, uh, there was a lot of description. There was a lot of contextualizing of, of the scene. And uh, I think I think they, that was sort of my first understanding that that there was something in that that maybe I needed to explore outside of writing. And interestingly, now when I write, I, I think that's my favorite thing about writing is, is really writing descriptively about something. And I think more and more as I get older, my writing is getting more personal. My latest book is more personal, and I don't want it to be saccharine. And I'm, I think I'm too young to write my memoirs, but but I think there's something about that's coming back to me from that television writing. Uh, the, the idea of writing about human experience, the idea about writing about about a, a sentiment that's not purely a formal uh, adjudicate right. adjudication of some external thing, but that actually has a much more humanitarian uh, presence. So maybe it's all coming together. I don't know. I, that's interesting. I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that Rem Koolhaas, who's been very influential in kind of my thinking about a lot of this, started as a screenwriter also. Oh, that's um, so interesting. And saw that as kind of like an architectural activity of having how people move through space. 
I think I read it, that. I can't it was, confirm it, that. It would certainly explain like the, the deconstruction of the mm-hmm. door and the window and the way he thinks he's done at the Biennale. That would certainly explain it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I think it's all grist for the mill. And I, I mean, it's, you know, most people, most of my students, m- many designers come up through a much more, uh, I think, if not conventional, at least more more um, streamlined process where they, they study form and composition and then they, they move on to things that are more conceptually rich and then eventually they right. go to graduate school and then they start their own studios. And that would be the path of, of the direction of most designers. But, you know, I, I had this unorthodox background and now at Yale I'm teaching scientists and I'm teaching in the business school with Michael now. So so I think this idea that design has a role outside of design mm-hmm. Uh, is in, is uh, it comes back to your first question, I think, which is why Design Observer. We really wanted to to start to look at design in conjunction with other things, and not just breach to the to the to the ghetto to the choir. That's interesting, and and it's funny because there's like this large group of designers that I kind of read when I was that high school student that I I saw them as writers first, like before I ever saw any of their design work. I said this to Michael Beirut. I I read his essays on Design Observer before I, any, I saw any of his his design, uh, and so I think it's interesting, um, kind of how you fall into that. Um, yeah, and I mean, you could you could say that design is pictures and words, and that mm-hmm. and that we shouldn't be sequestering one from the other, and it's not a divisive set of conditions, but one helps the other. So just as you design a logo, you understand something about letter forms. Why wouldn't designers be trained to understand writing and the expressive power of language? as one more tool in their toolkit. Right. When I when I interviewed Michael Rock, he, he said that design is an elaborate form of writing, which I think is a great uh, kind of way to think about that, too. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Taking these kind of pre-made pieces and putting them together and finding a harmony and a rhythm uh, kind of between them. And, and also, uh, I, I've often felt that um, I, I like... I imagine myself in the studio sort of swiveling between my writing self and my making self. And I always have. And and I would add to that, that when I add the teaching self, I I feel complete. Like it's those three things for me that if I take Mm. one away, I'm not as good at the other two. Yeah. Uh, Because in a way, think about it, you know, what you can figure out visually, you figure out verbally. And what you can figure out on your own, you figure out in concert with other people, which in the case of either being a student or teaching in a classroom or in a studio is, is, ideally a really lively intellectual space to probe a new idea. So in, in a sense, uh, design should have all three of those. We should have right, some right. education component, uh, some, some studio making, really vesting yourself and, and diving into something formally and, and, some, and writing. And I, and I really, like last night I was up really late designing something. Um, and I, well, I didn't plan to be doing that, but I, I, couldn't, yep. get, I couldn't work something out. And, and suddenly it was you know, midnight and I was still in my studio. The same can be said of writing. And I don't, I don't you know, actually, I'm not very organized. I don't say today I will write. <laughs> I might. I, I probably should, um, but I don't. I don't work that way. So, so where did when did those things start to come together for you? The the kind of design side and the writing side. You know, I think I think in earnest for me, the first time I felt like I was onto something where I had something to say uh, was when I was writing for I Magazine. Mm. So I did a little writing for print. I did a little writing for, you know, the AIJ journal because Steve Heller in, in, invited me to do so. And he was, of course, the most generous person inviting young writers to do all yeah. sorts of things. But it wasn't until I worked with Rick Pointer, uh, who was a really great editor back in those days, oh, who yeah. said, I want you to, he, he invited me to start a column and the column was called Screen. He named it. And, and he said, 
I just and, and I remember if if we could if I could track this down, the very first article explained what what I intended to write about and what I intended not to write about. I was interested in writing about all kinds of screens. You know, the screen as a as a mesh between you and the world. The idea of the oh, screen the, the screen as a filter, the yeah. screen as a surface or a canvas, the screen as a platform, the screen as a sort of shared entity that's social, that's two dimensional, that's four dimensional. Right. And I was so interested in the notion of how and this was this was early. This would have been. I want to say the early '90s, and so uh, you know, um, I, I I had young children. I didn't even have children then. I guess it was just in the early days, and we were just sort of starting our studio. We hadn't started started um, uh, Design Observer yet, but but I every month, I, or I guess it was every other month. I think it was six times a year. I wrote eighteen hundred words on something. And oh, it was wow. something. It was something cultural in the design zeitgeist. It was a film that had come out. It was, uh, you know, I remember writing about there. And I've done this uh, since because, of course, there's been so many tragedies that have unfolded through the media. I wrote about the, uh, the mass killing at Virginia Tech in an eye article because I was interested in the re in the reverse engineering of the gunman who was who was kind of reverse engineered through his screen life. And of course, now we do that all the time. And now, you know, three times I think during the killing in the in the Orlando attacks, the gunman checked his Facebook page. Yeah. So I'm not saying that I was prescient in, in writing about this, but I was really interested in how the screen was this kind of uh, membrane connecting. That's interesting. Co connecting the public to the private life of individuals, and and you know, for so many years it had just been the TV screen, which was such a barrier to entry. It was you know, you were in Hollywood, you were right. a star, and you were in the audience in your living room. Now suddenly, I could see this conflation of media and and you know, very Warhol-like in some ways, and very pro propaganda-like in other ways. And and so I think that was the first time writing. I, I would think about it for a whole month, and then I would sit down and I would really, I mean, every word I would really slave over. And then. When I had done about a uh, about a couple of years of those, uh, that's when I wrote the book screen, which was those essays, okay. and and then other essays I'd written. And of course, now they really most of them date. And occasionally, I look on Amazon and says, you know, who would read this? It's so dated, <laughs> because I wrote them, you know, twenty years ago. But but I think that was the first time I got excited about writing as an extension of my studio practice. And this was around. Where was this in the timeline to the Looking Closer series? I guess sort of, um, sort of similar. The Looking Closer series was was very much uh, Pointer and Heller. Okay. Uh, Bill um, Bill Drentel, my late husband, and Michael did. I think the first one. I think uh, there were a couple of them. I only did one, which was the historic one. Oh, um, oh okay. Uh, which is the one with the green cover, right. which yep. you know involved things that you know back to the Crystal Goblet and things like that. But yeah. um, I think they were looking at that time, and so I think that was. Like right before we started Design Observer, like probably late '90s was when we were doing those, and it was it was I think Heller's idea mostly to have this kind of canonical approach right. to these essays. And interestingly, I was looking at them only last week because Michael and I are teaching a course in the business school, and we don't really want the business students to read and write essays about design. But mm. but in order to give them some background, um, it does feel like a kind of seminal location yeah. to at least go and find those things. Of course, now everything's online, so. Essays and books are not as, as hard to find as they once were. So what, how did Design Observer start and kind of what was the plan? 
Uh, we saw that blogs were starting. I think Armin had started uh, Speak Up. Uh, Core seventy seven had had already begun. They they were the okay. first. They were they've been around since ninety five. When I think they were Core just 77? like yeah. They I think they were just like on a little dial up. You know, Apple I didn't Link. Realize they were that old. Yeah, they're the old. They're the they're the the old granddaddy of us all. And you know, more power to oh, them. Wow. I mean, they 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 keep on keeping on. They've done so well, just yeah. build building out and and you know really trying to kind of shift uh, against what the market could bear, but still being who they are really 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 they've done a beautiful job but we saw what was going on with what Armin was doing and and uh I think you know Bill and 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 um uh Rick Pointer especially felt Bill, Bill really wanted to start this thing and he said you know we need a voice uh, we need we need somebody really smart who and who's not American and of course Rick was the obvious choice and he was very interested in blogging um we, I think we were we have been over the years less successful in really having an international presence although that is largely what I've been spending my time thinking about in the last five years uh, and then Michael, and then Michael wanted to write, and so in the early days, I mean, Michael has, uh, as I'm sure he told you, incredible uh, nostalgia for the days when you know there's yes. like one, one post a day and three uh-huh. little things, and but you know what the real the real paradigm shift, um, if we look back, is that there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no social media, and so to comment was to comment there. Right. And so that's where the conversation happened. And so I don't, I don't know that we, you know, I've since there've been people who've criticized us saying, you know, it's your job to carry the mantle for design criticism. It's like, it's not really my job. I have a lot of other jobs. I have two children in college. You know, I have some right. other things I have to do and it's really hard to make money. We've never really been able to figure out a way to, to monetize design observer, but, but that was a really exciting time. I would say those first five, six, seven years, um, before everybody was doing it, when when we really were doing something, I think quite exciting. How it's interesting that you bring up social media because that's something I wanted to ask you about and how that kind of has changed what the site is. Um, when I talked to Armin, he said that he, as he was seeing more and more conversations happening on Twitter, there wasn't the type of discussion happening on Speak Up anymore, and that was one of the big reasons why they decided to kind of shut it down. Um, and so I'm curious, kind of how you. How? Yeah, he did a really smart thing. Armin's Armin's a genius at this. He yeah. he shut it down, and then he I mean, with brand new. It's like the only place I know where people are talking about something in earnest, and they're not yeah. doing it on social media. And he did that by being very very specific. Now specific, and it's still a huge field. But he really he dialed into that one thing, and he he hit a nerve in in a in a brilliant, typically Armin bit way. Yeah. Um, we did not do and, that. And who would have known that logo redesigns would become such the event that they Armin, have become? Armin has that kind of Midas touch with <laughs> those things. He's really you know I don't have that skill. I may have some other skills. That is not one of my skills. I, but I think you know you have to be honest about what you're good at. And um, he, I mean, he's really good at that. He's good at many things, but he's good at that. I, um, I think we, we, we have a great social media presence. We have, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot. Of, we have, I think we have almost 900,000 people following us on Twitter. Now, Twitter, it's free to follow somebody on Twitter, which we found when we did our Kickstarter last year. I think we, we jokingly posted one day if, you know, one 20th of our followers gave us, you know, 50 cents, we'd meet our goal. And I think we made $3 that day. Like it didn't, you know, so you realize like, really, you want to say really guys, really after all we've given you that's, but what are you going to do right into your soup? So, you know, I think, I think social media is great. I think it is an ecosystem. You have to do everything everywhere. You have to post everywhere, you, you know, and I think everyone's realizing this. It's not just that that's an artery to channel one thing. You have to Facebook again, and, and you have to post it on Twitter, and you have to do all of these things. And I, I struggle with this because my book, is, my new book, is really about, in, in a way, it's kind of a, a call to action against that kind of broadcasting. 
mm-hmm. against the kind of not that not that I mean I don't I do it every day, but I do it as a journalist. I don't do it as as you know. Look at my puppy. Although right. you know, I, if I had a puppy, I probably would do that. Um, I, but I think there's something about the it's it's become reflexive. It's become non-thinking, and it, and we what we lack, and and this to me comes very much back to design criticism, was we don't have a kind of a an ethical or moral center. There's no, there's no, there's nothing in the profession or in the way we teach or in where criticism is that that urges us to stop and reflect. And certainly, social media does not benefit the person who's walking around thinking about the larger yeah. moral center of questions. So I'm not trying to self-appoint myself as the ambassador of philosophy here, but I do feel that there's a crisis coming. And and I think design, really good design is thoughtful and meaningful and has longevity. Yeah. And it can't, in the, you know, a generation ago it had longevity because it, it subscribed to some modernist ethos. It, it, that's not enough anymore. I mean, I still believe in form and I still think that things that are classic maybe live longer, but I think that what's happening is that, you know, students are making things, people are making things, they're putting them out on the internet, they're going viral, they're, right. you know, yeah. and suddenly, you know, the next thing you know, someone's buying a gun and mowing down the crowd. Now, I, it's, I'm, it's an exaggeration to say that, but it's not such an exaggeration to say that. And, and I say this because, and this, you've probably seen this, I, my, the incentive, one of the big incentives for writing the book was a student uh, your age who was about to win a very big prize uh, from a jury I was on in Europe who had made a Kickstarter campaign to fund a revolution, and he, he he did it as a kind of mad libs, like just fund any revolution, just you know hit these points, and you can fund your own revolution. And and his Kickstarter video was a uh, a terrorist video that he'd stripped out the bad bubble type, and he put in his own legend. Well, he was so good at design that he used his design chops to retrofit the message on a pernicious video. So he basically appropriated the language of terrorism to create this innocuous thing. And as an art experiment, the other critics thought it was great. And I, I went apeshit crazy. And I shut down the conversation for two hours. And I, I just thought, oh my God, yeah. this, this is, we can't do this. I mean, the, the mother in me, the teacher in me, the, the, the moral Quaker school educated Pennsylvania kid in me <laughs> can't go there. And I thought it's not, you know, it's not like design isn't great and design can shape the world, but it's, that's not the direction we should be going in. So that right. that, that that to me, I, what I what interests me in design criticism is not being afraid to take a stand about something you believe in. This is something I believe in. It doesn't mean that design can't be great and award winning and change uh-huh. our perception of all sorts of things, but we can't do it without a better knowledge of what we're getting into. And that and that comes back to how we educate designers. It comes back to what, how we understand how things live on the internet, where they go, that they become unmoored from right. our imaginations and they traffic in this world we can't control. We're not talking about that enough in design. I have, I have so many questions. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I went, cause I was like a runaway train there, Jared. I'm no, sorry. That was, that was so Get me going. Great. I have so many questions. Um, when I, when I talked to Michael Rock, he quoted Mark Wigley, uh, who said he's doing the Istanbul architecture Oh, I love that thing he's doing with with Beatrice Colomina. Yeah, yeah. Um, and said that there is there is no world outside of design anymore. Everything has been designed, and and even even the nature preserve or wildlife is designed because we've put borders around that, um, mm-hmm. and said that that is a thing. And that's kind of where I'm coming into this with a with kind of a lot of my. Pro- project in this thesis is this idea that there are more people talking about design than ever before. Design is bigger than it's ever been before. 
um, how do we look at that critically to see what is good and what is bad? That is such a good question. Boy, that, that, that's the subject for a thesis right there, right? So to come back to your, how do we not sound like we're finger pointing and pontificating? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think a certain amount of wheat from the chaff is just going to self-separate. It has to, right? So, for example, yeah. take photography. Um, so, Michael and I were talking, and it'll be on tomorrow's podcast, but but this photograph that came to represent the Baton Rouge um, uh, police brutality, mm-hmm. black and white thing, yeah. this beautiful woman walking. Yeah. In. So, everything about this photograph, right? Like, you know, militant guys, beautiful woman, male, female, black, white, they're mm-hmm. in uniform, she's in a flowing dress. Her whole side of the photograph is empty. Theirs is filled with, with um, police yeah. guys in, like, hazmat suits. So... You look at a photograph like that, you think, that's no Instagram photograph, right? That is a photographer. That's a Cartier-Bresson moment. That guy, I mean, that's good. I hope it makes his career. It should make his career. He's a photographer of New Jersey who lives in New Orleans, who happens to be in Baton Rouge, who got that shot. Photographers, like designers, like artists, we spend the time, we put in the time looking and looking and looking some more. Why was I up till midnight last night? I've been doing this for 30 years because I couldn't crack the design of a four-page story in a magazine. And when I cracked it, I was so excited about the new idea I had that I was up for 14 more. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. try to explain that to people who are uh, taking pictures of their lunch with their ca- with their smartphone, right? So there's, right. I mean, at some point, the world will recognize that one thing is one way and another thing is another way. And I uh-huh. think this this comes back to, um, you know, this is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's argument in Outliers. Like, yeah. you got to spend 10,000 hours doing something to get good at it. And, and just because you have a smartphone and think that conveys a certain visual literacy does not make you capable of, you know, and, and with all the Wix templates in the world. I mean, you know, the good thing about the Wix and the Squarespace templates is the world looks a little bit better than it did when I was first designing websites and stuff really looked bad. Right. It looked like it was done in McPaint, you know, and now it's really funny because some people want to bring that back as like intentionally grunge, right. you know, design. But I think, but you're right to be asking these questions because, you know, if, if we're only dealing with what's good and what's bad on a surface level, Yes, that can drive sales. It can drive the economy. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a lot of what I think my, my students, our students at the business school this year are going to want to talk about. How do I know good from bad if I'm managing a team? How do I know good from bad right. if I'm, you know, do I, is there, they, they all want to know outcomes. This is the, our biggest challenge teaching MBA students is going to be that they want takeaways. They deal in stakeholders. They right. are hard, firm, fast, quantitative. And we're about process. We're about, we're about putting in that time. And I can't always quantify. I mean, you know, I'm a seasoned practitioner, and I couldn't, I couldn't accelerate the process it took me to get to this point last night with this thing I was designing. So, I mean, the same you could be said of writers, and maybe maybe scholars understand this better than than non-scholars. But I think that people think design is easy. Right. It's not so easy. And and I, I'm not, I'm not sure how it's going to shake down, but it is an, it is an interesting time we live in. Real quick, did you read uh, Teju Cole's piece in? this weekend's New York Times Magazine about that Baton Rouge photo? Uh, I, I scanned it quickly. Uh, I, I read so many things uh, ahead of it. What did he say? I mean, he Teju Cole is, is probably my favorite essayist working today. I, I, I read everything that he writes. Uh-huh. Um, but he, he talked a, a lot about kind of what you were just saying of, of the way, the composition of this photo and then compared it to the surplus of superhero movies uh, right now, and that we look at these kind of photos from the Black Lives Matter movement, and we can kind of project superheroes onto them. 
Oh, that's um, a really interesting reading because I was going to tell you that Max Breensman, who's a critic in Amsterdam, wrote about the deconstruction. It, it, she's like a deity. She's like a she's like the like the Madonna. Like it's like an ecclesiastical. Oh, yeah. It's like an ecclesiastical, you know, twelfth century painting. Oh, um, just compositionally with her, and the way she's standing so straight and so unperturbed by this unbelievably right. menacing swarm of men coming towards her with with you know with guns. I mean, it's yeah. There will be great books written on this. It's yeah. So you know, an image can can convey a moment, it, and it can partake of a culture in a larger cultural moment. So I mean, that's that's like the, you know, it's way before you were born, but but the Kent State photograph or the Eddie um, Adams oh, yeah. photograph of the children running in Cambodia. I mean, these they become these markers yeah. for generations. You know, the Twin Towers pictures. I mean, there's mm-hmm. always going to be an image, and it's not w- words are harder to remember than images. They they really they right. sear our, themselves into our subconscious in different ways, and I just don't think. Um, this is a bit of a departure, but I'm just going to tell you briefly. A friend of mine, is a photographer, was telling me that the the, the professional photography world has been upturned recently because like because young are uh, young photo buyers are turning to Instagram to hire photographers. So so he told me the story of a, of a you know some very young person uh, working at an agency needing to hire a photographer to do a shoot for Pampers. And so he went and he found some mom who took pictures of her toddler and she had 22,000 people following her on Instagram. So he hired her. So the day of the shoot, she shows up for the shoot and it's pouring. She doesn't know how to light it. She doesn't know what to do. And she's completely right. incapable. So right. this, isn't, this isn't a shout out to, you know, photo, young photo editors, but, but it does make you wonder about, about where quality is going to be understood in, in this new world where everybody thinks they can do everything. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because, like, I, when I was in college, the big in undergrad, the big kind of discussion that I feel like uh, my professors were talking about and was talking about in the larger design culture was that designers wanted a seat at the table, and that uh, all these all the software was making the job easier, and that that the professionals could kind of bring something new, and I feel like that's just kind of like a perpetual conversation, and that designers and this kind of comes back to what we were talking to designers have to constantly kind of be reevaluating what they do and i think that's where criticism and theory comes in in um you know what do, what is a designer in 2016 and i think it's easy to look back at the kind of canonical texts of what a designer is supposed to do but there's also a need to kind of be reconsidering that you know, each generation for what does it mean for us to do today? Exactly. It's, it's really sort of hard to know. Yeah. Like, what do you follow? Like, I was reading that piece that uh, your friend wrote about the old guard designers versus the new guard designers. Oh, yeah. And, and I thought it was interesting because, you know, I, of course, none of us want to be thought of as old, but we are, I guess, considered that. I'm very conscious of that. Like, what am I giving back? What is the, what is the thing that I'm transmitting? Like, I don't want to be in competition with my students. And I don't want to be saying, you know, in my day, I walked 12 miles, of, you know, to milk the cows before I designed a font. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a kind of, I mean, I, you hope to model by example and do it with, with the generosity of spirit. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, uh, God knows, I think I've, I've put in my generosity of spirit uh, hours writing recommendations for 9,000 former students. But, but I think there's something about, like, I really enjoy writing and teaching and and making things and writing this book and making paintings and so if a student of mine decides to go make a body of work that's something like I really encourage them to think outside of 
of their comfort zone. Now, again, teaching in the business school, these students want jobs, and they're very right. clear about the skills they bring to a, a consultancy because they're coming in in different kinds of ways. So I, I'm right now. I'm, I'm trying to understand what that means because I don't want to see my design students not getting jobs because my business students are getting the jobs, which means are the business students asking different kinds of questions? Are they trying to get the right. same jobs? Um, I went to an amazing lecture yesterday that uh, a friend of mine here gave on the company Threadless. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's actually, this is unbelievable. I, I need to put you in touch with this guy. So this is a case study about the fact that Threadless gets all of its T-shirt designs from designers who upload them because they want to be voted in and up. And the percentage right. of who submits and who gets chosen is so small that they're basically yeah. getting just just thousands and thousands and thousands of, of slave labor, of, of free labor, right? Free labor. Right. And then they get voted on, and then they have some operating costs, and then they get chosen. And the, I mean, the profit margin for the people running Threadless is huge because they don't have to pay any of their designers. And the designers right. aren't doing anything except getting feedback from others. It, it's such an interesting thing about our community and our culture and why we're not privileging the management of our field so as to monetize our efforts in a way yeah. that benefits us, except that the final the, the final clincher on this threadless case study is that the people in management are all former designers. <laughs> so they have a certain <laughs> kind of uh, kind of vetted authority because they've put in the time on the 10,000 right. hours of time that, you know, anyway, so it's, it's, that's yeah, interesting. it's an interesting uh, thing. I mean, the idea that we would, we, I mean, we don't teach with case studies in design, but in business they do, and they're looking at why was that design better? Can we yeah. quant can we quantify it? Did they manage the process better? Was the logo vetted early, and therefore there was buy-in from the CEO at a different like? They're asking questions that we don't ask. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to come. I want to come back before I forget to something that you mentioned earlier about kind of social media and that kind of immediate uh, kind of criticism and that kind of lack of philosophy and theorizing. Yeah, has has design criticism ever had that kind of philosophy and and more kind of deeper thinking and the reason that I ask it like that is and I've mentioned this to a couple people that I've interviewed is it's easy for me to look back at the 90s with rose tinted glasses because I just missed that era and to see all everything being written about design at that time and thinking like that was like that's the golden years of criticism was it really like that and and is there that kind of intellectual rigor in criticism? Well, I think the danger for the intellectual rigor is that it gets really nerdy. It gets really inside baseball. Yeah. It gets really academic. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are people, I was just sitting here before you called looking at Victor Margolin's Politics of the Artificial. I mean, this is a guy, he is like one of the, he's one of the, <laughs> Michael Berry calls him the high priests of design. He's one of the high priests of design, right? <laughs> I mean, this guy was writing, I mean, I, I think somewhere I downloaded his, his um, PhD dissertation once, I think, oh, wow. just because I want to like, because you can actually go online at, at the library and download people's dissertations. So I do this when I'm sitting in airports sometimes and I'm bored. Speaking of nerdy, Jared, speaking <laughs> yeah. of nerdy hobbies, I'm like sitting there in Barcelona, my plane's delayed, I'm downloading Victor Margolin's dissertation. Anyway. 
you know, I, I, I think it's really interesting to go back and see what, what was Richard Buchanan saying in 81? What was Victor Argolan saying in 76 in design issues? What was, what was, you know, Catherine McCoy saying? Now, some of these yeah. people are tied to the schools at which they teach. You know, Michael Rock was at Yale for a long time. He's very aligned to architecture now. Columbia, Victor Margolin's been in Chicago forever. Uh, so sometimes there's that. And of course, of course, um, uh, Catherine McCoy spoke about Cranbrook, where she was for many years. But but they're the ones who actually uh, made it out of the pack and, and published and whose, whose names are, are more well known. I think that the danger is with too many blogs and too many journals and too many sort of uh, short-sighted efforts to just, you know, what are we doing? Are we just... You know, there's, there's, I haven't even begun to mention the ones in Europe. There's a bunch in England, the Royal College. You know, people, you can get all sorts, you can get all sorts of PhDs in design in Europe that, that you can't get here. You, you can get a practice-based PhD. You, you know, right. you can get a, another. You know, and there's PhDs at, at at real places and lesser real places. And these people are all writing and and you know. And so there's a lot of soapbox, you know, pontificating. And I'm just not sure it advances us. I, I sometimes feel it's. Have you ever been in a lecture where? Somebody asks a question in the audience, and all they're doing is grandstanding because they're mad yes. that they're they're not on stage. Yes, right. So they're adding, and you know. <laughs> so I think, unfortunately, design criticism can easily turn into that. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> the thing is, what are you criticizing? Are you one of the things that we're trying to do with our podcast now? And, and Michael and I really has, have really pushed because we're older, and because I think we felt that our purview lent itself to being able to maybe spread a, a wider net around these things was to look at design and politics, to look at design and culture, to look at design and, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and technology entertainment at a different level where maybe we can introduce different kinds of things, different kinds of topics, look, look deeper and look wider at these things. So that to me is a different kind. That's just, you know, we modeled our show after the Slate Culture Gab Fest, which, which is, which is, you know, the same thing. My like favorite let's, podcast. So I thought, let's do that for design. Let's come together. And we've been doing it for two years. The two of us were likely to add another person. I don't know what's going to happen. We're starting a new podcast in the fall based on our, our new class. But, but, you oh, know, let's, cool. let's, let's talk about something that's real and happening now. And let, and let's make it, you know, through the, somewhat, you know, unreliable prismatic lens of design. Let's t see if there's actually an angle on it that's of value to people who follow us. So yeah. that's not design criticism like let's delve deep into the canonical works of Robert Brownjohn, right? That's, and there's a lot of that out there. And I think it's great and it has its place, but it maybe does, you know, so there's, if you've got that at one end and then you've got the, you know, regurgitating reflexive, you know, what, what I think is great about Twitter is people who are reading interesting things who share them. What I think is terrible about Twitter is people who use it as a place to pontificate because to, you can't say anything intelligent and important in 140 uh -huh. words. Yeah. But if you're going to restate something someone else said, you better put a spin on it that's intelligent. So that form of design criticism is actually, you're encapsulating some very small atom right. of an idea. And then maybe you're going to seed it for someone else. So for a student, like let's say you know you see something John Maeda says and it takes you to something else. I mean, I, I found this thing this week. I was reading in the Atlantic about the Allen Institute, which we're gonna I talk about on tomorrow's podcast. The Allen Institute. Paul Allen, who start, who is the co-founder of Microsoft, is oh, really yeah. really interested in brain research, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they're doing all this stuff with mice to test the visual cortex of mice and brains, and they're showing the mice Orson Welles movies. And I burst out laughing. Like, to me, that's a design story, okay? Like, really, Paul Allen? How great is that? I want to work there. They're showing right. them a touch of evil. Like, these mice are looking at that long tracking shot. How great is that? <laughs> it's so great, right? Yeah. That's, that's the kind of thing that, that, you know, I want to do. Um, 
So I don't know. I, th I think design criticism shouldn't be so serious, but it can't be so silly either. So uh, there's there's a lot of room for interpreting that. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. I hadn't even made the connection to the culture gab fest, but now as soon as you said that, I, I that's exactly right. That's exactly what you're doing, and I think I think what like what they do, which is really interesting. What what you guys are doing is it is kind of going kind of really deep on a topic, but also really wide um, in a very short amount of time. Yeah, they're 35 uh, minutes. They're really short. Yeah, uh, um, which is which is great because it's just bite-sized. You listen to it on your commute and, and you kind of leave knowing something that you didn't know before. Right. Uh, That's the, the goal. And the new one is uh, we're teaching a, a, this class with a very hyperbolic title. It's called 12 Design Ideas That Change the World. Oh, wow. And only because, you know, it had to be suitably hyperbolic to deal with uh, the MBAs. But we're bringing in a designer or a client or a designer and a client every week for 12 weeks this fall and again this spring uh, to talk about some project or initiative or idea at the nexus of design and business where the transformative catalyst moment was visual or was creative or was something that is unexpected. Oh, interesting. And so we're bringing in, you know, uh, we're hoping to get Danny Meyer and Paula Sher to talk about Shake Shack. We're bringing in the yeah. Teddy Goff, who uh, was the digital strategist for the Obama campaign, who's now working on Hillary's campaign. Uh, we are bringing in people in public health, public space, architects, uh, uh, broad, people from Broadway and, and film. I mean, just really, really interesting uh projects they're not case studies they're they're just real people talking about real projects in real right. time and so then we'll that we've got a broadcast studio here so we'll take them down and interview them so hopefully that will become a that, that's going to be that's our a, great a, idea. a second podcast and really talk about because i think there's a real appetite now for design and business but to not let business drive it like yeah. we want design to drive it because it's really interesting to come back to the first thing we talked about which is making language visual and right. making visual things you know, compelling for people and, and finding a way in through that kind of design criticism. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you're, you're starting these, this other podcast and I was just, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking about all the things that you've done. And in addition to your own writing, I feel like a big part of this has also been making platforms and spaces for other designers to contribute to the discussion. Well, that's such and a nice thing for you to say. I hope you're right. And, and so I'm, so I'm, I think you are, or I think, I think I am right. And I think you are doing that. Um, and so I'm curious of like, where does, it, where does that come from? Well, yes. And then two is what value do you see in kind of making space for designers to talk about these things? Well, part of it is just a very, on a very human level. I, I really, I was raised by really nice people. I went to Quaker schools and I believe in a kind of giving back service that's just in my blood. And I really have always hated design superstar, look at me stuff. I hate it. I hate yeah. public speaking for that reason. I remember being about your age and going to my first AIJ conference and seeing a whole long line of people, Milton Glaser, all these people signing yeah. something that they'd done. And I said to myself in that moment, if I ever make it and I'm a peer, I'm never going to do this and not let people in. So when I go to the AIJ conference, I just do roundtables. Oh, I, I and for this new book, I say I'm, the book is about trading hubris for humility. It's about it, it's about design as a humanist discipline and understanding yeah. the larger cultural human birth within which in, within which design operates. And so I said to my publicist, I will not do any public speaking. I won't give any lectures. What I will do is give workshops. 
I will have conversations. I'm going to the Society of Printers in November to have a conversation with the printers about the book. I'm going to Australia over Thanksgiving to hold workshops with students. This is what I did in Portugal, and I'm teaching a class on the book in the spring. I don't even know how I'm going to do this, but I know that, that the goal is to seed the conversation, to, is to take these ideas that I have and not make them mine alone, but to, but to get them out there and say, if right. I wrote a chapter on design a consequence, on the fact that things that are viral are not always good, the trending is never going to be trending for very long. And so if design is participating only in a, a value system that's about what's cool and trending, we, yeah. are, we are really shooting ourselves in the foot. So how do we walk out that door, walk in another door that says, where is the value in what we do? And the only way to find that value in terms of the evidence of what we make as designers is for me to put it out there with other designers. It's not me on a stage showing my work. It can't be. Right, right. So this really, if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow, that is what I'm about. And I really have always wanted to do that. It's what it, Writing for me was always a way to get other people to respond and have their own ideas and make their own work. Yeah. I, I love that. My last question is, and we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started recording, so you don't have to give away too much because now I know that this is happening. But I wanted to end asking you, if you were to start, if you were starting Design Observer today, in 2016, how would it be different? Well, I'm, I am going to give it away. I would hire you and do it with you. I swear to God, I, I'm not just saying this to butter you up. I would start a television station or a television show. And I've tried, we've been trying to actually, Michael and I are doing some experiments with some uh, online classes uh, and, and we're, we're experimenting with some video here. I think, you know, this is, I, I mean, I did have some training as an actress. Michael's a real showman. Right. Michael, right. Michael's a real showman. I think the next thing that has to happen, and, and I really hope that we can find a way to do this, is find some way to turn what you're doing into a platform that isn't open in terms of everybody doing it. So it's, it sounds in the sharing economy and with the transparency with which we're meant to really look at everything today, it sounds like I'm, I'm being elitist. But I think that the next thing to do is to use the screen, to use video, to compile interviews, to do field interviews, to be an, an investigative journalist, and to look at design in a global, vital, human way by by making it not just audio but audio and visual and i don't know that writing in terms of things that people read is the only way i'm not saying that writing is going to go away but i don't think it's the primary vehicle for getting idea across i think books are books you sit you read them their essay length their chapter length their novel length that's a thing i don't think that's going to go away but i don't think that design criticism is necessarily that that's its best vehicle for delivery. And so that's why what you're doing is so interesting to me. And and I, I'm so delighted that you reached out and contacted both Michael and Emil. And I hope you stay in touch with us, while, not only for this year while you're doing your thesis, but but beyond. Because I, th I think this is a really exciting moment to be doing what you're doing. I hope we can do it with you, some of it, some little piece of it. Oh, yeah. That, that really means so much. And I, I really appreciate you talking with me also. And I think that's like a great way to end it and, and is... Well, and Perfect. and it's meant it's meant from the heart, Jarrett. And and I know Michael, if he were here, he would he would absolutely be in agreement. This episode was recorded on July 27, 2016. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at ScratchingTheSurface.fm. Thanks for listening.